It is a music-loving podcast for music-loving people where we take every single album by a particular artist and we rank it all from worst to first. It is the penultimate episode of Season 5. This is our 59th artist. And if you want to know why we keep this podcast going as long as we have, it's because... I can't believe we haven't done this artist before. Growing up in Utah, not always having the coolest, hippest sense of what cool music was, I know that in my musical journey, I had to find a lot of things. I know I had a lot of blind spots, and honestly, part of the reason to make this podcast is because there's a lot of artists I've been always wanting to get into, and this was a great excuse to do it with friends, with uh, critics, with other people, to just kind of do a deep dive into this discography. This artist I've always loved, but let me tell you, I didn't know how deep it got. I didn't know how emotional it got. I didn't know how what the fuck it got. I didn't, it is just, it is just all over the place. And I'm so excited that this is our, our almost send off for the season. That's right. This week we're talking about the one, the only, an artist who samples, writes, distracts, and also appropriates black culture. So she's the 1970s equivalent to Vicky Azalea. That's right. We're talking about the one, the only, Joni Mitchell. <laughs> Art Nouveau, if you're nasty. Uh, so Joni Mitchell, oh, no. <laughs> Joni Mitchell, she is uh, one of one of the greatest musical exports from Canada. Uh, when she was, she's had a series of both tragedies and strange occurrences and accidents happen in her life. She contracted polio at age nine, which left her bedridden. Which ultimately said, as her, her words, she had to create her own imaginative interior world. Initially, she was going to be a painter, but ultimately, she discovered a love of uh, songwriting as well. She acted as self-taught on the guitar, and after trying out the Toronto circuit and eventually moving over to New York was getting into this weird pushback from people to be like, you can't cover our songs with the New York folk scene and our songs are our songs. So she wrote her own songs and ultimately got some hits. Judy Collins was an early supporter of her and then ultimately when she came in with the Crosby, Stills, and Nash era as well, she ultimately then got a record contract that gave her unlimited artistic freedom and she really fucking used it on a series of albums that got increasingly more rock and then increasingly more jazz. It's a wild fucking journey, y'all. So we are excited to go on it and just like Rolling Stone in the 1970s, we need to judge her. So uh, we are going to do so uh, with our wonderful uh, cast and crew here. Of course, there's me. I'm Evan Saudi. You might know me. I write for a bunch of places about the musics. And uh, I most hope you know me as the host of this podcast because I love this podcast. If you know anything about this podcast, then you know the person sitting next to me, the Graham Nash to my Joni. That's right. We're talking about the one, the only, the co-creator and co-founder, Taryn O'Reilly. Hi. So I pine after you for decades after you leave me and write half an album about me? I need to hear at least a couple more songs before that comparison's out. Yes, <laughs> I think we can Taryn, what was your familiarity with Joni going into this? Well, so I'm in a, a sort of a strange place because I believe my father owned Court and Spark and Blue, mm-hmm. but like he didn't buy Blue until like the early 80s and got into her a bit later and like didn't know all of... So he was less familiar with her than I thought he was, partially because uh, the Circle Game is oh my God. probably the most commonly sung <laughs> song by the O'Reilly family because there's always so many of us so we can do all the harmonies like it's a sing along anyway and it's also very hot take alert appropriate for family gatherings because it's talking about time passing and it's like oh I, it's been a year and you look older you know so that they literally every holiday someone starts singing circle game and 
and then everyone is singing Circle Game. Yeah. Um, to the extent that, like, to to my ear, there are harmonies missing on this recording. On the Joni Mitchell I'm version. Because I'm so used to hearing, like, 35 fucking people <laughs> well, you know, improving harmonies yeah. well, to I think Circle Game. Someone who could add a lot of harmonies is our guest that we have Absolutely. today. Someone who I am blown away. I had to double check. In fact, I'm like, has she only been on one other episode? Is that true? It doesn't feel right. It doesn't feel, it feels incorrect, but she is an actress, she is a singer, she is a dancer, she can conquer any field she sets her mind to, and right now it's hiking Instagram. That's right, we're talking about the one, the only, Allie Kern, in studio right now. Allie! How you doing? I'm good. I'm also a wearer of long, flowy skirts and Birkenstocks in my late teens and early 20s, so I am um, an a certain authority on Joni Mitchell <laughs> right. and can really attest to this. Yeah. Did, did, was there a lot of her growing up? Yes, but not um, the kind that I later fell in love with in my 20s. I fell in love with like folk singer-songwriter Joni Mitchell, like mm. uh, the early 70s albums. My exposure to her when I was growing up was my dad loved the jazzy Joni. My, oh. dad, my dad owned uh, The Hissing of Summer Lawns and Don Juan's uh, Reckless Daughter and Mingus. And uh, the one that I can't... Hegira? Hegira. 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 Yeah. Yeah, so I grew up listening to, um, and Court and Spark, too. Like, Free Man in Paris played a lot So the back house. half. Yeah. yeah, yeah, the back cool. half of Joni. A lot of jazzy yeah. stuff. Yeah. A lot of, like... That makes yeah. some sense, because Court and Spark was sort of her commercial breakthrough. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I think that's when a lot of people started paying attention. Right. And the thing is that her career is extended all the way out for several other albums there, but for the sake of consistency and time, we're going to focus on her core albums. We're specifically going to go from 1968 to 1979. And that covers a couple fascinating albums, including her David Crosby-produced debut, Song to a Seagull, from 1968, her much more lush self-produced Clouds from 1969, her more loyal canyon sound, Laura Ladies of the Canyon from 1970, her uh, confessional album Blue from 1971, her, uh, okay, we can have a radio hit if you want, For the Roses from 1972, uh, her commercial breakthrough in the form of the more rock-based Court and Spark from 1974, her first real detour into heavy jazz in the form of The Hissing of Summer Launch from 1975, her even further dive into jazz with bassist Jacob Astorius in uh, Hajira from 1976, her album 19 from 1977 called Don Juan's Reckless Daughter, and her uh, collaboration with uh, the late great Mingus in terms of Mingus in 1979. So that is 10 albums that is a lot of stuff. The great thing is that she doesn't really have EPs or like one-offs or anything else like that. If you really want to get technical, you can include her live album, Miles of Isles, but we're not going to do that because we never do live albums, because why? I will say, before we go any farther, just before any Joni fans come for us, not that I expect that to happen. <laughs> they seem like a pretty chill bunch. Yeah. But, <laughs> but there is a part of me that feels a little weird about this cutoff point. It feels a little arbitrary because I did also listen into some of the later albums and like the ones in the 80s I don't think uh, the 80s synth was a good match for her uh, is what I'll say but I do actually think her album from 91 is really interesting and has some great songs on it and a couple like singles where I'm like yeah this sounds a whole lot like what other female singer songwriters were doing in the 90s but but done very well so it's uh, for fans of Joni 
there are other things worth checking mm-hmm. out that we may not be talking about. There today. might be a part two. And, well, no. It's not worth all of that. I want but, to hear your thoughts on 2007 we'll, Shine. We'll get, we'll get into uh, more of those thoughts in the happy hour. Cool. Yeah. Well, I'm excited to talk about that, but also I'm excited to do Rank Her Albums from Worst to Best. Again, we are here. It's a friendly discussion, even though it's definitive. Uh, we're going to go ahead, and as a group, we're going to come to a consensus, maybe outvoting at some points, but mainly just to talk about the art and artistry of Joni Mitchell. Album slots 10 to 1, Song of Seagull Clouds, Ladies of the Canyon Blue, For the Roses, Court and Spark, The Hissing of Summer Lawns, Hygiera, Don Juan's Reckless Daughter, Mingus. <laughs> some of these are hard to say. Uh, but let me just say, uh, again, it's just a free-flowing discussion, but most importantly, Allie Kern, friend. Yes. Music lover, fan. It's me. Hello. I just more than anything else, we're just going to start off the discussion. I don't. We don't have to be definitive. I just want to hear what would you nominate as the worst Joni Mitchell album? My personal nomination is the worst Joni Mitchell album, and it took me a second to figure out why, but I'll tell you why. It, it "Song to a Seagull," the oh. first one. Yes, correct. Oh, yeah. Uh-huh. Walk us through a... Uh, I don't love the way that her voice sounds on this album in general. I don't think that it has the clarity that it can have and that she is so beloved for. Um, and I found out why. Yes. Oh, tell the story. When David Crosby produced this album, he... I It was, you know, the late 60s and people were doing experimental shit. And he was like, Joni, man, I want you to sing into the studio's grand piano. Just sing right into the strings, Joni, and we're going to put extra mics up. And you're going to sing straight into the... That's my... <laughs> I thought he was in the room. Just to clarify for guests, this is not a beamed-in broadcast. He's not here. He's not here. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, he made her sing into a, ba- a grand piano with a whole bunch of mics set up. To try and get the reverberance yes. of the sound, which I get as an idea. Right. In in person, that would probably sound really cool. Yes. <laughs> but the problem is that through a microphone, it just creates white noise. Yes. So and it makes her sound flat. Because they had to, they had to basically cut the entire high end right. out of the recording right. to get rid of all of the reverberating piano strings. Yeah, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. yeah. and it's kind of weird too because I, the, I mean, I've been listening to a lot of this straight through this week, but near the end of our uh, research week, I just had it on shuffle and going from like a, a, a for the roses track to this, even that short span of time, mm-hmm. like going from one to the other, the sheer levels of her voice have changed. Yes. And a lot of it, there's also a lot of her smoking as well, even though she claims that that has nothing to do with her voice right. changing and raggedy over time. I smoked for like two decades <laughs> and I sing, and I can tell you unequivocally that not smoking. My voice sounds much better than it did when I was smoking. Right. And but also, I mean, there are definitely other things that can cause degradation of the voice. Fair. So if she's not blaming it on that, it's very possible that it, because very commonly the answer is just vocal technique. Right. You're doing yeah. it in a way that is slowly shredding your yeah. vocal cords. And not record you in well, like seven different right. mics. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so let me, let me just toss one thing back at you then. Does the uh, effect of having losing that high end and having your voice sound flat, does it detract from the songwriting performances, anything else at all? I don't know if the two are related for me, but I don't love the songs on Song to a Seagull because they don't feel lived in. They feel like somebody was like, hey, Joni, will you write a song about XYZ? And she wrote a song about that for them, if that makes sense. Mm. Her other later albums, to me, feel more lived in. It feels more Mm -hmm. as if she has, she's writing from a place of experience. And I feel like in this album, not all of it is like that. Right. I feel like a lot of, oh, go ahead. Oh, sorry. I was just going to say, she's also only 23 during Song to Seagull. So literally she has lived in her body longer (laughs) later in the career. And it, 
you know, that definitely... I mean, even just from, like, you compare the emotions on Blue to the emotions on, like, Hajira, and it's just, like, a totally different different person, basically. Well, and I think uh, songwriting-wise, you can almost divvy out her, these first ten albums in nice little brackets, because the first three albums are very much her as folk songwriter. Yes. Blue through Court and Spark is a little bit more confessional, kind of using the self to express emotions that she was writing, kind of story songs. 70s folk rock. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And then for the the latter albums, the more jazzy-oriented ones, it is perspectives, it is fragments, it is uh, reflections on mm-hmm. the stuff that Images. she created. Exactly, yeah. yeah. And so, I, I hear where you say on there, I would say that of the trio of opening folk albums, Song to a Seagull, Clouds, and Ladies of the Canyon, I would say Song to a Seagull for me is the worst of them. But it wouldn't be my personal pick for number 10. Album? No, my my personal pick is Don Juan's Reckless Daughter. Oh, like, talk about Reckless. Reckless and Deep. <laughs> <laughs> what, right. 16 minutes for Paprika? 16. I'm 16. Oh my I mean, fucking god. It's an god. entire side of an album. Yeah. And it's a whole, it needs to be like a modern dance company's suite. Like a yeah. modern dance company needs to do a suite to Paprika Plains. Yeah. And that will make sense contextually. But to me, listening to this is just like, oh my god, get on with it. And it's not just yeah. that song. That song yeah. is 16 minutes long, but all the other songs are like six minutes long. Yeah. Six, six minutes yeah. long. Six to eight. Yeah. And that's, I, I there are things that I do love on Don Juan's Reckless Daughter. And I love Talk so, to Me. I mean, Talk to Me is With such a good talking. song. Mm-hmm. I don't even <laughs> care about the bug off, bug off. You keep trying to make that a problem. It's not a problem. Yeah. It's not a problem. Chicken no. squawking. Um, I think, I think Jericho is really solid. Mm-hmm. Dreamland could be better, but it's still that extended a fun outro. Listen. Yeah, is a little bit. I mean, I appreciate that she's trying to do new things with her sound at this point. She's trying to really get into yeah. a lot more like tribal influence. She's trying to get into a lot of other Latin percussion and things. And I think it's it's fascinating experiments, but I don't know if they coalesce around fully formed songs. Right. You know, there yes. are a few that are very good, very fully developed, but the rest of them feel like experiments where she was like, this is cool, let's leave it. Right. I feel like I feel like Hygiera is indulgent in a way that isn't overt, Mm -hmm. and I feel like Don Juan's Reckless Daughter is literally no one telling her no. Right. Uh, And I... Well, and that's indicated with the album art and all of that, too, which we can save for later if we want to. I think let's... Let's focus let's, on the song. I, I agree. Yeah. I agree. We'll, we'll yeah. talk about, let's talk about the Don Juan's Reckless Daughter album cover. We will talk about. Oh, in half please the hour. Google it. Yes. Um, Put a button in that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, neither of these are my pick. Okay. Oh, um, oh. Karen, what, what would you pick? Well, because the thing is, I I do even though both of these albums have problems, <laughs> they do have great songs on them still. Okay. Oh, God. And I feel I feel shitty saying it almost, but for me, it's Mingus. Oh, it's, okay. I, I just... I think as an album, though, Mingus works so well all together as a cohesive piece. And I understand you not loving it, uh, and I understand the why, but for me, if we're talking about an album and rather versus a collection of songs, mm-hmm. I, would, I would rank Mingus above... He's in there, man, but I don't know where. Yeah. Well, <laughs> well, let's just do a little bit of an explanation, though. 
I think really a big turning point, a lot of people say Hissing the Summer Lawns was kind of a turning point in terms of her moving away from the rock sound, even though there's still a lot of kind of gimme gimmies on there. Hygiera onward, she eventually, Jacko Pastorius is truly an incredible bassist, and you can tell a latter era Joni album from an early one just from the bass sound alone, because his yeah. fretless bass work, it is so smooth, it is great, and we'll get into it I think later, but for me on Hygiera, I think it works beautifully with the way she has her guitar set up. Yeah. Uh, in terms of Don Juan's Reckless Daughter, obviously, as we talked about very musically indulgent. There's a couple takeaways on there. Mingus was her collaboration with Charles Mingus. Uh, it was actually the last thing he really worked on before he died yes. because jazz musicians fucking love Joni because she played with jazz chords a lot. She didn't do pop songs in conventional structures and especially if you listen to almost any of her lyrics sometimes she just doesn't do choruses sometimes okay. she just kind of has repeated words instead of like long drawn out like notes or mm -hmm. things. So I think there was a lot more rhythmically interesting that jazz musicians attuned to with Joni than they did for almost any other folk artist in the mm -hmm. era. So jazz musicians, I think, were around her all the time. So Aminga's collaboration, it makes sense. In fact, Charles wrote actually several suites for her to be interpreted on here. The only song on this album that he didn't get to hear prior to his passing was God Must Be a Boogeyman. which and it in, shows. Which, in her words, she said it would be hilarious. Uh, he would think it was hilarious. He would think it was hilarious. Like, yeah, that is what she's But saying. it's one of those things where when you take out the five, quote-unquote, rap, the five little uh, sketch of life recordings that are interspersed between exactly. it, uh, we yes, have yes. six songs There's only left. six songs on this album. Okay, all right. And to yeah. me, that doesn't feel like a, cohere a fully thought-out album. It okay, feels like right. six musical ideas padded with rap. I understand, but also, okay, I was going to say, Lauren Hill did this, but she had full, like, those were not yeah. their own independent tracks. Yeah. yeah. And that was much later than Johnny. Yeah, so, I mean, but no, I mean, I, I don't want to completely say, I will say that between us talking about Sonic with Siegel, Don Juans, and Mingus, that's my lower three, I will yes, say, okay. personally. But, um, yeah, I, the thing is that, like, I, I'm surprised that you find cohesion in Mingus. I just want you to talk about, do you just feel like it's it holds together more than Don Juan. I feel like it tells a story, and okay. I feel like Don Juan goes off on its own little like world pleasure. Even cruises. though it opens with an overture. <laughs> yes, and I feel like Ming, uh, uh, Mingus actually like tells a story and has like a you know you feel very connected to this man who's like it's obviously starts off as his birthday, and every little interlude has like a conversation with him or about him, and so it feels very it, cohesive to me. But okay. I understand no. what you. I mean, I do hear you on that. As like an album experience, album. it is probably better compiled than some of the others. However, I, if it comes up on shuffle, do I want to listen to old dudes talking about their funeral? Not necessarily. Am I going to skip that? Yes. I mean, right, right. And that's the thing is that, like, while I have an appreciation for the songs on this album that aren't God Must Be a Boogeyman. <laughs> um, the only one that I wouldn't immediately skip is The Dry Cleaner from Des Moines. Because that shit is fun. But, you know, otherwise, it, it's just, it, you know, I don't I don't know that there's... A song takes way in the same vein as yeah. that. Right, and that's hard because it's just such a different genre that I feel bad saying it <laughs> and just, like, throwing it out this early. Right. But it just... You know, when we're comparing apples to oranges, unfortunately, sometimes the oranges yeah. get put at number nine. Yeah, that's fair. I think I, I think after this conversation, I would put Don Juan at ten because it just kind of pisses me off. <laughs> <laughs> okay, like, okay. What are you doing? Why? Why? Yeah, what are you doing? Yeah, what are you? This isn't. This isn't I mean, what this I signed is up kind for. Kind of fun, I guess, but right. It, 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 I mean, it like, feels if like you have the patience for this album, congratulations. Yes. But for, for Don Juan's. Exactly. Or but yeah. choreograph for like a modern dance company. Congratulations. Great. Fantastic. This is the album for you. 
But, like, I mean, truly, yeah. given the other things and even the other jazz-related experiments that she's done, mm-hmm. I just feel like it just goes in a direction where she considers her art, capital A, art, uh, to the point where, like, her first albums were like, I'm a good I'm a good artist, why aren't you buying this? And then her middle albums are like, I am a good artist, you should buy this. And then by the later end, I'm such a great artist, you don't even need to buy this. And yeah. basically told her audience to flip off at that point. Yeah. And yeah. I feel like you can kind of see that. I mean, that. she says it in the boho dance. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. 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 Oh, yeah, I'm so excited to talk about the boho oh. dance. Uh, but yeah, in that case, if you want to go Don Juan 10... I do, yeah. Mingus... I would go Mingus 9 and then Song to a Seagull, because although... Terry makes a great point about the, just the ratio of songwriting to talking. <laughs> like, old dudes talking. Yeah, no, the other thing, too, is that as she gets jazzier the delivery of her lyrics gets looser and looser. And she's always had that sort of, I don't care how many syllables are in this line, I'll just sing it faster so it fits the rhythm of the song. Right. Or like, (laughs) you know, like, she's like, I'm just going to sing this part really fast and get the whole thought in. And that's, you know, it's fine. It works. She delivers it beautifully. So you never question it. And, and once you start getting into sort of hissing of summer lawns, but especially Hajira, the sense of like, the vocal melody having a consistent rhythm that mm-hmm. you could conceivably write down on paper and have someone sight read mm-hmm. is out the window. Yeah, no. Yeah, she, it's all just like, if it's you more... take a, that, a song off of <laughs> <laughs> to a composer at an audition, they're going to be like, what? Fucking what? <laughs> okay, I, I, I personally would agree with that ranking. I think okay. that works great. Don, Don Juan 10, Mingus 9, Song to a Seagull 8. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I guess I'm fine with that. Okay. The only... Argument I would have is that I actually would put Song to Seal even higher, but I see that neither of you would, so I'm not going to fight super hard. <laughs> okay. I just, one last there thing I want to say later. about it yes. is that I think Cactus Tree is one of the best things she ever wrote. It was a big discovery for me this week. I think I had heard it before, maybe, but this week I'm like, ooh, I want to sing this. Okay. Like, I just think it's it's... A, just a stunning composition and it tells a beautiful story and it even sort of because this was 1968 cactus mm-hmm. tree it kind of like she's talking about how like the the character of the song is just out in the world being free and then there's these men that she's left behind that are like having a hard time forgetting her and trying to move on and let her go from their memory and she's just out in the world and she does not care and it's kind of before it happened it's like the exact story that played out with like each of her famous paramours mm-hmm. paramours mm-hmm. graham nash and james taylor uh-huh, and uh-huh. a couple others that i'm blanking on right now but like the it's, drummer dude. it's like yeah. it's, it's that thing like believe people when they tell you who they are right like she, it was on her first album if you had listened to the lyrics you would have known this was how it was gonna end mm. almost okay so i just really like mm. that side of it yeah. and then there's a couple there's a couple other i think the first three tracks are all great um i love night in the city actually i do yes, that's, night in the yes. City. that's my my favorite standout song from this album i really love specifically i love the verses on night yes. in the city I just love how they're composed and the different layers of all the strumming and yeah. It's well, beautiful. it's not. It's hard to like once you get through Don Juan's Reckless Daughter. It's hard to say which one of Joni Mitchell's albums is the quote unquote worst. worst yeah, because it's like it's Joni Mitchell, right? Yeah, yeah. Right. She makes she makes bold artistic statements and discoveries, and I think is just kind of evaluating the success level on it. Because at this point, now we're getting to the point where there's a lot of successes, and also somehow, in spite of trouble. Ours will be everlasting love. 
I found out that that is what Sisotel Bell Lane, that's what that means. Yes. That's what Sisotel Bell stands for. Yes. yes, somehow, in spite of trouble, ours will be everlasting, everlasting love. love. That's stupid. That's, right? <laughs> that's why that's my number eight album. That's all right, stupid. That's number eight, great. Cello, locked in at number eight. Okay. All right, so that's, that's great. And I, I think... <laughs> The thing I love is that we all nominated something in in that round. We got through 10 through 8. That's great. So I think it goes back to Allie. This is where it's going to get a little bit interesting. This is where I think things are going to diverge a little bit. Okay. I'm excited. Right. Uh, I just want to see what would you nominate at number 7. My number 7 pick would be um, the soundtrack for Getting Ready for the Renaissance Fair, a.k.a. Clouds. Oh, okay, okay. Walk us through a little bit about your journey with Clouds, your feelings, um, why you set the spot. I there are a lot of really standout songs mm-hmm. in Clouds, but when you look at like when I'm comparing it to some of the stuff that's about to come up, I can't rank it higher than a lot of the other shit. I like Clouds, but as like a whole as an album, the sound she's still in Folkland. You know what I mean? Yeah, she's this very is very much. She's even character. pared down. It's yes. more like acoustic guitar and voice. Yes, yes. But her voice comes through so much. Like straight up, bigger, um, fiddle in the drum sounds mm-hmm. like it needs to be sung like in like a tavern in Lord of the Rings, like in oh, Helm's Deep. I mean, yeah. that is, that's that's like a Ken Burns documentary. Was, yeah, it was her spin on like a traditional on like a Civil War yeah. marching yeah. song. Yes, yes. Or even like a it's like a. Civil War marching song, but she's twisted it into a protest. It's a protest. It's a yeah. Vietnam protest song. Yeah. yeah. Um, but this is also where she starts reclaiming some of the songs that she's already written. Because yes. That's she fair. records a lot of her songs after the fact, after they become hits. So both sides now and Chelsea Morning, although they appear here, they were both already hits for Judy Collins mm-hmm. by this point too. And both of them are so great when she does them. Both yeah. sides I mean, those now, are... though, at the end of this album, I feel like it's like that meme of the lady who's like does something, something, and she doesn't sound. And both sides come, now comes on. She's like, hey, yeah. Okay, both sides though. It's so different than from the rest of the album, I feel. Mm-hmm. To be like stuck there on the end, it almost feels like, yay, I played the show, and now listen to what else I've been working on. Like, here's the encore. Here's what's coming up. That's, mm-hmm. that's kind of what it feels interesting. like. Interesting. I think that this album, I think, is very interesting. There's a lot of very romantic songs in here. This is, I think, largely based around her attraction to Leonard Cohen at the time, who apparently yes. she met through a Judy Collins songwriting workshop. How about that? Mm-hmm. Uh, but, I mean, I think it's interesting because there's a lot of, like, very good songs on here. There's also some bizarre songs on here because uh, songs to aging children come is an interesting <laughs> it's little it's folk weird. thing but yeah. let me tell you roses blue that's, that motherfucker uh, that's not like okay guess what I have a friend and she's really into tarot cards and putting her religion on it she's just she's into dark weird shit that's what you need to know yeah. I've seen a lot of reviews call it and she's wrote songs about misuse of the occult and I'm like the fuck is that? What are you talking about? Like, it's just, it's so such a weird little outlier of a song that's more of a character piece. <laughs> yes. And like, I guess it's like almost a commentary on this is the dark path. This you know hippie love generation yes. could go down, but it just feels oddly. Th- it sounds beautiful, and that's it's the thing. Interesting that it comes right after the song about the midway. Too. Yes, exactly. It's interesting that it's almost like a parable of like don't go down. By the way, <laughs> so it's kind of, there's a little bit of mysticism to it. And the thing is, as you learn, and we'll get into this in a couple other albums too. But man, sometimes. Jody's beautiful voice could cover up some weird ass fucking lyrics. Weird ass yeah. shit. So I I see I'm not sh- I, as I'm looking at everything right now. Mm-hmm. I could see clouds being here, but also I want to hear what Taryn is. I mean, I also love I don't know where I stand. Mm-hmm. I think yes, 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 yes. That yes. are just I don't love absolutely that. stunning. Okay, fair enough. Yeah. Um, <laughs> 
But it, well, the, but then on the flip side, there's like songs on here. Like I, I think I understand, which I do oh, confuse. I with. got it confused. Mm-hmm. Yes, I'm sorry. I did like the. I don't know where I stand. I think I understand. Yeah, 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 yeah. Like, yeah, yeah. do you? Do you? I'm not sure. So, so I am not too mad with clouds going in this neighborhood. The neighborhood, mm-hmm. right? Okay. I fair, fair, fair. would actually my least favorite of these first three albums is <gasps> Ladies of the Game. Really? Wow. Oh, walk okay. us through. Yeah. I'm excited. Yeah, I just uh, the songs here just don't connect with me. Okay. I just think they're all pretty run of the mill. Early seventies girl with her guitar. I don't. She like they just don't grab me in the same way mm-hmm. that I think. There's a lot of melodies on "Song to a Seagull" and "Clouds" that just work out the gate. They're okay. just like immediate. Like, ooh, this is beautiful. She's singing it gorgeously. Whereas like "Ladies of the Canyon," I had to like I had to listen to it more times than some of the other, especially the early albums, to get the songs to like click in my brain and. Yeah even be able to connect them to like their song titles. I just, yeah. And I also don't, I don't know. There's no like great lines that stick out to me. Obviously this has the two huge iconic songs. Three, the last three songs on this album, I think are all iconic. Well, yeah. I mean, Woodstock, especially because of the, the Crosby, Stills, Nash Dude, I version. thought it was a Crosby, Stills, and Nash song. And then we were, well, like, I'm I was listening certain. and was like, wait, oh, shit. did she cover this? I'm, oh, I'm shit. fairly certain they were released like in the same year. Yeah. Like Crosby, Stills, and Nash yeah. put theirs out first and then yes. like, Less than six months later, she put out her version. And the which thing- I also read today that she the the first time that Crosby, Stills, and Nash played together was at Joni Mitchell's house. Yes, I that's know. crazy. Yes. But also, it's weird because when I first heard it, I'm like, "This is a weird, weird version of it." But then, like as time went on, as Listening Week went on, I really, I really dug. I this almost yeah. prefer this it, version. Exactly. Yeah, it's, it's like it's just scary. Weird. when she goes back to the and we need to go back to the garden and just hits those notes and it just sustains and there's Ugh. this moody keyboard underneath. It's like. Okay, like I'm down. <laughs> it does have the herda derda. Uh, but the thing that's she weird. She didn't know. She, yeah. How could she have known that herda derda was going to become a thing? <laughs> and the, th- the thing that's weird is that um, I'm not sure exactly if I agree with either one of you because I see faults with both of them and I see interesting things. I like, and intrinsically, I like Ladies of the Canyon a bit more because it is a little bit more of a pop album to a degree, but also she gets to experiment around a bit. Like in Rainy Nighthouse, there's a part where she talks about going up to, I'm singing in the church choir and then this mm-hmm. choir mm-hmm. of Joni voices comes I in. I love that song. And like the thing we kind of forget about is that after David Crosby quote unquote produced her song to a seagull, she produced every other album after that and she has a remarkable yeah. control of the studio. Exactly. <laughs> She knows how to layer her voice, and she began experimenting around with so many different things. Yeah. Where if there's certain songs on Ladies of the Canyon, like uh, Morning Morgantown, that don't work L- as strong. Literally, literally, I, th- I think that's one of my biggest problems with this record the is opener? because the first song just like <laughs> makes me roll my eyes. <laughs> <laughs> I just like, oh god, I, I don't feel like care. I, I had a king to me make does the same thing. It's just like. Ugh. Who cares? Yeah. I'll tell you this though: you get you haven't lived until you are on public transportation and you hear two guys like "fuck you, motherfucker" as Joni Mitchell's in your ears going, "You're captive on the carousel of time." It's a good, it's a good vibe, man. 
So it's, I would say that I would, I think maybe on a song for song basis, maybe Ladies of the Canyon isn't as well composed as Clouds, but I would say I kind of still enjoy it more because even when she gets into the weird shit like the priest, it's like there's, she's really discovering her sense of drama and character creation yes. in writing these songs. And too. Willie is the same Yeah. Way. I like Willie. Yeah. I Willie, also like Willie reminds me of, um, oh, oh, there's another one that happens later that's on a different album, but just anytime Joni slips into a character voice, I enjoy it. I'm here for it. Yeah. Um, oh, I gotta admit, I'm not gonna argue, I'm not gonna fight too hard over these. I don't have, like, Ladies of the Canyon must be lower. Yeah. Like, that's not where I'm at. The only so. reason that my brain puts Ladies of the Canyon higher than Clouds is because of the trifecta of the... Bot- the last three songs Pops. on Ladies of the Canyon yeah. are so iconic. Joni Mitchell, they're just Joni Mitchell songs. Big Yellow Taxi, followed by Woodstock, followed by The Circle Game. Those are big Joni Mitchell songs. I mean, yeah. I guess I'm, I'm, I'm going to throw an argument you used back I'll at you. <laughs> I just think that Clouds overall is a stronger album experience. I think that, that throughout the listening of the first nine songs on Ladies of the Canyon, they don't give as much of an impact. And then, yes, those last three are all huge and iconic. But and, if you were already lost before But if you, all, if you gave up on song five, then what does it matter that song ten is her one of her most famous songs ever? I thought you said you weren't going to fight this, because God damn it, <laughs> I just changed my mind. <laughs> Would you, well, here's the question. I mean, so you, but you said Clouds is kind of in this area, maybe? Oh, yeah, Clouds is yeah, around here. Okay. Secret, so. okay. I mean, the the thing is, I would, uh, personally, I would have put both Clouds and Song to a Seagull above Ladies in the, of the Canyon and one other one we aren't even talking about yet. But oh, shit. Okay. <laughs> I'm not, but again, I'm, I'm fine. It's With not Larry. like... I'm, I'm not, I don't have super strong feelings about these back half albums and their order. I, I think, I think I, I think I might be convinced because yeah, again, it's a fun conversation. It's fun, right? It's, it's fun. fun. <laughs> uh, I think I, I might be inclined to put Ladies to the Canyon at seven then after okay. that. Yeah. yeah. I would say. I, it's an effective argument. You did a good job. Tim. Yeah. You, you, did, you did a good job. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's great. Gloating is going to get you far. I'm but not going to fight too hard for this. Well, <laughs> I didn't fight very hard. You just yeah. left a door open for an argument that was in my head. Right. <laughs> well, in that case, Taryn, do we want to talk about Clouds being at number six or is there another? Another album that you wanted to discuss rather than clouds okay so next up <laughs> i would put okay they sing of summer longs <gasps> oh yeah oh, you're no. gonna be fought on that okay, okay, okay. On cool so. we can bury clouds now. okay yeah. uh I, i'm still i want to talk about uh uh dancing of summer longs quite a bit though because of these, of these albums that we have left, and for the record, that's number 10, Don Juan's Reckless Daughter, number 9, Mingus, number 8, Song to a Seagull, number 7, Ladies of the Canyon, number 6, Clouds. Uh, number Now we're getting into the tough stuff, and I will say, Hissing of Summer Lawns was very much a surprise for me, because this is an album that, going into this week, I genuinely had no familiarity with, absolutely. And it's interesting because a lot of people saying, oh, this is the point where she turned on her audience, she rejected it, but that's not really the case, because in France, They Kiss on Main Street is like, it could have been on Court and Spark. Yeah. It is right yeah. out of the fucking yeah, gate. Totally. Iconic, Johnny. Ex- exactly. And then she goes hard into the jungle line, yeah. which just completely rewrites everything. <laughs> right. Well, well I think I think jungle line is probably the point when some of her like early acoustic folk fans or even like, her casual adopters. Yeah. yeah. Which is a shame because it's an important song technologically. Yeah. It was the first commercially released song to use sampling. Yes. Which is 
crazy it's to me. Huge. Yeah, which That's, is amazing that there Johnny was Joni fucking did Mitchell did that. Right. But then honestly, when you get into some of the counter melodies on uh, Edith and the Kingpin, I love that. I song. fucking love that song so much. And as much as like the boho dance, this it's at this point kind I love of sweet bird now too that I'm in my late thirties. I really <laughs> identify with that, that bird of space and time. Mm-hmm. I, I I love boho dance. Yeah. Yes, I, all of the production and the details mm-hmm. in, in the arrangement of that one is it just Really, really I felt like it. this was the first album, Hissing of Summer Lawns, and I am biased towards this album, fam. I'm going to go ahead and yeah. let you know, because this is the one that my dad played the most frequently when I was growing up. This is the one that I'm the most familiar with. Fascinating. So I love this album. It has a lot of nostalgic uh, qualities for me. Oh, God. <laughs> and so it's, it's one of those things where, like, I will say there's a couple, like, for me, like, uh, Shades Scarlet Conquering doesn't hit me as strong, but there's so many highlights on here. Some people have called this a secret masterpiece, and I yes. wouldn't go that far, but I would say it was such a joyous surprise for me this week. I, I, I absolutely it's dove so the fuck into this album, too. And it was just so. It's also great because I feel like, especially as we get into Jazz Joni, this is such a beautiful middle ground because as much as The Jungle Line is a hard outlier, the rest of the album does have the sweetness and this pop succincty to it mm-hmm. that still kind of ropes you in. And she is also, with the boho dance, she's doing something that she kind of started on Court and Spark and a little bit on For the Roses, which is now that she's famous, now that she's amassed all these songs, commenting on her fame has become yes. part of it. Now, the one part problem with that is that when you start commenting on yourself as a persona, it's inherently less interesting than the things you did to become a public persona. So it's one of those things where I feel like as she gets into the later albums, uh, you know, especially Don Juan, etc., and especially beyond that, it becomes this bitterness. It becomes how she eventually evolves from this, you know, like sweet, not naive, but like the sweet, like understanding writer into this lived-in experienced person willing to bear her soul into someone who kind of sours on how the rock community and the radio world kind of treated her. And so there's a little bit of bitterness that comes out on Hissing of Summer Lawns, but in this sense, it's digestible. In this sense, when you think about the singer that you have on For Free, about like she's driving in a limo and seeing someone just busting down the street just for the hell of it, and there's just this immediate like, man, I want to do that too. And then going into the boho dance, where now it's basically, that's almost unattainable to her at this point now, to be able to do something like that. It's There's just fascinating contrast. And I think it's at this point in her career that the Hissing of Summer Lawns works, because we know her persona and because it's relatable, but it's not hardened into hard bitterness yet. You yes, know? yes. Yeah. So I for that reason, even if not every song on Hissing of Summer Lawns works, as an album experience, we keep talking about this, but like I just feel like there is a statement that she yes. wants to make with this, Correct. which I think is fantastic. And I full full on like walking it back, I won't argue with that at all. I like just sitting here thinking in that moment, absolutely Hissing of Summer Lawns is a better full length album than Clouds is. Okay. Like I I, I, do, okay. I do as much as it's I don't have as many, like, immediately, like, oh, that's one of my favorite Joni Mitchell songs. Right. It is, it is a very coherent piece of work. Yes, and it, it is. It is a nice listen start to finish. It is lush. It yeah. is a lush listen start to finish. You feel like you're hot because you're surrounded by, like, palm fronds or something. Yeah. And it has rained recently. And it's wonderful. Yeah. Jim, what's your it's all-time, what's your favorite song off of this? Oh, God, probably um, In France I Kiss on Main Street or The Hissing of Summer Lawns because I remember listening to that on repeat when I was a kid because I got fascinated with the cover and all of them carrying that giant snake yeah. on the cover. Mm-hmm. If you've never seen the cover of this album, it's just a bunch of, it's like a string of women who are carrying this giant python in like the backyard of like a cityscape of Los Angeles. 
And I was fascinated with that giant snake and therefore was fascinated with the title track, The Hissing of Summer Lawns. That's lovely. Well, I think that's great. I would say that um, Hissing of Summer Lawns is coming up for me. But for me, I, I might surprise some people with this next nomination here. I really I really think I might. And I'm okay with it. I'm willing to take the, the, the flack and the thorns and the whatnot. But my next pick is honestly for number five, genuinely, in terms of pure enjoyment, it's going to be for The Roses. And the thing is, is that, like, I know as much as Hygiera is kind of, there's a lot of take-it-or-leave-it kind of prospects on there, the songwriting on For the Roses is so interesting to me in the sense that it is, she's finding a different kind of voice because after she bared her soul on Blue, she's kind of finding this mixture of both allegory and personality, like, personalness between these things. Like, she's still trying to be personal, but she's also kind of covering it up, like Judgment of the Sun, of uh, the Moon and Stars is very much a divorce song, but she's still trying to cover it up in metaphor, where she was just laying it bare on Blue. And then you have You Turn Me On, I'm a Radio, a song I like, even though it was written out of pure fucking bitterness, too. And so, right. Like, it was literally like the record label was like, We won't put this album out, you need a single. And she's like, Fine, I'll write you a radio single. <laughs> and it's gonna yeah. be about radio DJs because they love that shit. They love hearing us talk about themselves. The lines are open. And, uh, and then you get to like even heard the song about uh, uh, James Taylor's heroin addiction, Cold Blue Steel and Sweet Fire. Yeah. Uh, God, I love that. Yeah. Like, it's just these things where like it's this weird mishmash of her wanting to. Confess. I love to sometimes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, like, it's an album. I, I like it. I enjoy it. We're in the top five now, but in terms of my personal takeaways, my, my vote is for the roses at this point. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's it is between these two for me. Um, what two? For the roses and hissing of summer lawns. Oh, oh. no, not for me. Oh, yeah. no, yeah. I I totally agree that that for the roses would be would be coming up soon. I thought that was going to be so much more controversial. Yeah, no, oh my god. <laughs> I personally love For the Roses, and I'm going to have to disagree with Please, please. I love it when you disagree. <laughs> because I think it has really, really great songs on it, and really great songwriting, but I do think that she was a little drunk in <laughs> love for a lot of this, and so her songwriting kind of reflect, reflects that. I love Bar and Grill, though. I think Bar and Grill is a really underrated Tony Mitchell. It's so silly. <laughs> it's so silly and great. I, I love See You Sometime, too. I yes. think that song is stunning. so beautiful. So stunning. And Blonde in the Bleachers, what a fuck you song, right? What a, like, fuck you, I see her. Fuck you. Oh, well, like, honestly, right there. for me, the hardest one to digest in a beautiful way was Let the Wind Carry Me. Because okay. at the very end, when she's talking about, like, you know, I want to settle down, I want to have a kid again, but I'm just going to let the wind carry me where it goes. Kind of this bitterness, like, this, like, I'm at this point in my career where I don't know if I can have that anymore. Okay. There was, like, this... this the deepness to it that was just so so striking to me so i also really love woman of heart and mind mm. i think that's sort of the equivalent of what were we talking about oh people's parties on court and spark oh yes like they fill a similar role song wise they're one of those it's like just over two minutes i don't think there's a chorus in either one of them mm. and it's just about like setting the scene and telling like a vignette over like with a beautiful melody and fantastic guitar playing and it just works for me so i think for the roses has a good vibe start to finish okay that's why it's not my personal pick for number five mine would be 
Hajira. I and I understand where that's coming from completely. Now I feel like Hajira is a bait and switch. It <laughs> fucks me up because Coyote and Amelia, Amelia, Amelia is one of my. I love that song so much that I named a vehicle after it. I had <laughs> a 1985 Toyota Camry that was named Amelia. I love that song so much. But those two songs back to back, right out the gate on Hajira, and I'm hooked. And then 30 minutes later, I'm like, what the fuck am I doing with my life tonight? What is this? It's like hanging out with an old friend and like it gets a little late and it gets a lot weird. And you're like, oh, I probably should have gone like three oh, we're, songs well, we're ago. But I got real high and we had an intimate crying session. And, and like now I'm here and I feel weird if I leave early and she's still going. <laughs> so I feel like I should let her finish. It sounds like a story based off <laughs> yes. of real life experience. So I... I get what you're saying. Hijira was definitely, of my favorite albums, was the one that unfurled the slowest. Yes, and the vibes are disjointed. It, it's so different. Is, it's just so different from from where she's been before. It's full, like, beat poet at times. Yes. And, but, full Ginsburg. But, but the comparison I, I make here is that, like... I think part of why Hajira is so hard to take in for Joni fans is that a lot of her songs are like close-ups and still lifes, and Hajira is landscapes. Yes. It's all about Oh. It's all about the macro yes, view Karen. and zooming out and like the title track specifically, she's talking about big philosophical concepts, but also like nature and how they collide and like yes. she's she's got and it's and it's underpinned by just this slow meandering like gorgeous she's got all of these pro jazz players just giving her like you couldn't ask for a better backing track to tell the sort to paint the sort of images that she's painting on this record mm. and i also think that black crow is a ridiculously underrated song uh, from her. My, one of my it favorite revelations so this week. fucking Holy good. shit. It rocks, I think, yeah. harder than anything else on this album. Yeah. It definitely, like, it, it's just, it's a, such a nice break on this record of very flowy, <laughs> you know? And so I, I, I absolutely love this record. I was so surprised with how much I was connecting to it the more I listened to it. But then on the flip side, it has Blue Motel Room. It has Blue Motel Room. It has Blue Motel Room with, so, the, with the incredible lyric. I'm, I'm, I, what is it? I'm peeking at your boom, boom, pachyderm. I have all these ladies hanging on your boom, yeah, boom, pachyderm. What's a boom, boom, pachyderm, Joni? <laughs> yeah, what's is it, is it a trunk? Is, is it that his dick? She, yeah, it's yeah. probably. It's well, then also... That's also not the only... The you only, and I, like oh. America and Russia, always keeping score. No. I think we got to have ourselves a peace talk. Which is, so again, it turns into a cold, cold war. Yeah, it's one of those things where that, for me, was the revelation of just, like, I'm just listening to this album, and I'm, like, listening out to it, and then, like, as soon as I heard Boom Boom Pachyderm, I'm like, wait, what the fuck did she just say? <laughs> What did well, you just say? And that's, I never noticed Boom Boom Pachyderm, but every time she did the American, 
Every time she did the America and Russia line, I was like, girl, girl, girl. I know. And so it's one of those things where, like, there's a weird bitterness in Furry Sings the Blues, which I actually kind of love. Yes, Uh, we do. Well, that's the character song I was trying to think of earlier. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't like you. And everyone laughs. Like, it's his best joke. Best joke. Yeah, which apparently is based off of a real blues guitarist that she had a bad interaction with. It's like, well, fuck you. I'm going to write a song about it, which is honestly, you know, kind of a uh, girl boss move. Also, Uh, I really love, well, I, I like Song for Sharon. I wish it was four minutes long. Instead of... Instead of eight and yeah. a half. Yeah. Um, so, the, you know, I, I'm not going to say this album doesn't have problems. Right. right. But I love two-thirds of it. So that's why I would put it fairly high. But again, I think, I think that of... The ones that are left, these three sort of being the ones that we're fighting over. Kissing for yes. the roses and Hygiera. Yes. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and the thing is that these are in the top five. I wasn't sure how Hissing was going to do, so I'm so fucking happy that it's here. But I'm also, uh, I, I will just say out and out right now, for me, Hissing it can't go at number five. I just can't. I can't. Mm. I can't. You can't put it, it that low. I can't put it that no, low. No, but I could put for the roses there as much as I love it. I agree. As much as flowy skirt bohemian, okay. working stock wearing, seventeen-year-old <laughs> me. If we put for the roses at five, then mm-hmm. I say we have to put Hygiera at number four. Correct. I. 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 I so Hissing at Summer Longs is number three. I would. <laughs> I wish you all could see his face. That feels. Really wrong to me. Really, this is one that I will fight over. Okay, I, I have such a well. Can a we agree huge... on for the roses at five? Yeah. Okay, that's let's do that. Deal. That's correct. We we made progress. Joni gets things out of people. Yes. This is your heart on the line kind of shit. All and right. Honestly, if you just recite the lyrics of Amelia to me, you might win. <laughs> I just I have I have such a strong affinity for the songs on Hajira that I didn't get from many of the other. Like songs I discovered, but again, we're ranking albums, not songs. So when you're looking at the album as a whole, which one makes a better album? And for me, Coyote and Amelia are two like it's a bait and switch. I'm like, this is amazing, I can't wait. And then Furry comes, and I'm like, all right, that was weird. And then Strange Boy, Strange Boy is strange. Strange Boy is strange. Strange And then by the time that we get to like Song for Sharon, I'm like, what are you doing? Okay. Fine. <laughs> okay, we're oh, sorry. We're hanging out. You checked out, Joni. What are you doing? <laughs> I still, I mean, I still love this album, and I think obviously a lot of Joni heads are going to have a lot to say, and I hope they say so in the comments. I guess uh, I just uh, the last thing I'll say, even as you rank them where you're putting them, <laughs> is that I think another reason that I personally would put Hajira higher is because even the songs that I don't like on Hajira, I have like a stronger memory of, whereas on Hissing Summer Lawns, I do think that there's some songs that just sort of faded into, even though I've listened to Shades of Scarlet Conquering like four times, Mm -hmm. I don't know what it sounds like. And similarly, like, I remember kind of liking Shadows and Light, but there were Things it's that her, held me at arms. Yeah, I mean, it's her voice and, like, and then a keypad kind of going through and it. That's and that's it. basically right. it. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, which is actually, I kind of like, that one has stuck with me. I would, I'm not sure if it's like my all-time favorite, but it definitely has an effect on me. More so than like A Strange Boy, which is a very, I mean, genuinely, it's a story song that it took me a couple times to kind of like get into of like, so this boy's skateboarding and, and you're saying, grow up. And he says, why, man? And it's just like, 
oh, okay, it's kind of like this, Why is this a story weird hippie. <laughs> it's this weird hippie right. discourse of, of this those... of this flight attendant she slept with. Like it was just kind of it, was, it just kind of felt <laughs> incongruous slightly. To, just to piggyback off of what Taryn said about not knowing what Shades of Scarlet Conquering sounds like, I would argue almost that the reason that you don't know what it sounds like is because it happens contextually within the album so seamlessly. Fine. That it like <laughs> it's just a part of the overall large album before we whole. before we do anything else that is going to be uh, a ranking of Don Juan's Reckless Daughter at number 10 Mingus at number 9 Song of a Seagull at number 8 Ladies of the Canyon at number 7 Clouds at number 6 uh, For the Roses at number 5 Hygiera at number 4 and The Hissing of Summer Lawns at Number three, which I this might shock people, but that leaves blue and court spark. Who could have seen that coming? Wow. But before we do anything, I don't even want to fucking talk about ranking. I want to just talk about the albums right now. We're just going to go in chronological order. Let's talk about blue. Oh my god. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I just, I know they're the two Joni albums, but jeez. My reason. thing that anybody has ever said about Blue was Chris Christopherson when it was first released in 1971. He said, Jesus, Joni, save a little bit for yourself. <laughs> because it's literally all on the line in Blue. And it grabs you and it hooks you and you're invested right away. And it's so beautiful. Every... Every single song on this album is so profound and so beautiful. There is not one song that I'm like, no, I'm going to skip this one. But there's so many sad moments on here. Like, the thing is that Blue is a mood, but it is just heart-wrenching. It is gorgeous. I mean, by the time, you know, we don't need a piece of paper from the city and my old man, when she talks about that kind of reckless I joy of like, young love. I trying to convince Jane. Yeah. Well, I, I literally, I heard... <laughs> The first time I really listened to the lyrics of My Old Man this week, I was like, oh my god, it's my Aunt Bridget. Like, literally, <laughs> like, moved to L.A., lived with her man for decades, never got married, finally had a kid together, like, a decade ago, and it's just like, oh, this is, the, maybe this is where she got it from, I don't even know, or like, I don't know if this is like a, like a California attitude or something, but... Yeah, I don't know. That that song specifically, and it's also in this, like, perfect, simple soprano range that I could, like, hear half yeah. of my aunts singing it mm-hmm. perfectly. And that's true of most of this album, even though I don't think I've heard them sing these songs specifically. It just, like, so perfectly encapsulates what 1971 sounds like yes. to me. Yes. That it's it's just and and like you said, there's not a song to skip on here. Mm-mm. There's every single one is, but even even the songs that maybe aren't as much my favorites, they have something to discover inside. Yeah. Right, like even this flight tonight, I kind of really forgot about the, kind of this worrying feeling, and then like partway through, this kind of like she tries to turn on the pop radio to distract mm-hmm. herself, and then it has the sound that kind of comes almost right out of Court and Spark later. This kind of like a moment, it's like oh wow, literally that moment to me, I was like that sounds like something they would have done in like the late nineties. Yeah, it sounded so almost anachronistic in to hear on an album from 71. Yeah. And that's, that was truly as much as like, I, I'm probably most familiar with this album just because I don't know. I feel like it's gotten the most attention in the most recent decades. Um, and rightly so. And it's, and when we record this in uh, 2021, it turned 50 this year. Right. It yes, turned it 50 like a couple weeks ago. Yeah. yeah. But I mean, just it, 
it just doesn't let up. All I want yeah. is... Oh, God. Ding, ding, I want to talk ding. to you. I want to shampoo ding, 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 ding. you. Yeah. I want to <laughs> renew mean... you again and again. What's more fucking romantic than someone washing your hair and just wanting to renew you? Every right. I ask you. I, I can't think of a single goddamn thing. None. Right, and just and then honestly, I I have heard Little Green so long, I didn't fully realize the context of it mm. until I was fully reading up on it this mm. week. I didn't know the story of when she was so poor and had a child and had to give it away, and then didn't meet this woman for years until like 1997. Wow. Uh, you know, I didn't and, know about the meeting. And then and the then they had a strange relationship too. After oh. they after they were trying to form a connection, and then during one uh, shouting match, Joni slapped her. So and they've made up since then, but it's been a very kind of contentious thing too because that event informed so much of her songwriting yeah. over the years, and she had hinted at it before, but it was so explicit here. Uh, and also just talking about how like she wrote, you know, wrote that letter saying like you know her eyes were blue, and then he wrote back with a poem. He's a nonconformist, also kind of a fuck you uh, as well uh, to basically be like, by the way, like yeah, this guy's a hippie, and so I said like, by the way, here's a little information about your child. Oh. A poem? Yeah, that's gonna fucking help a lot, man. Thanks. Thanks. You know, like, it's, there, there's some wonderful fuck yous on this album, and I think that's part of the strength of Blue, is that it's not vulnerable in the sense of, these bad things happen to yes. me. It's vulnerable in the sense of, here's how I'm feeling, and here's how I'm, I'm overcoming it. I'm fucking hell, and yeah. I'm upset, yes. and everyone's and gonna I'm, know about I'm it. I'm gonna tell this story, not because it's embarrassing for me, but yes. because I'm so mad. It's the lemonade to- of 1980. <laughs> 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 it kind of, honestly, like, there's, it's, it kind of is, because even, like, a case of you you said you were oh northern northern star oh like what surrounded by blackness okay i'm gonna be at the bar what, like, where's that at constantly in the darkness <laughs> right exactly it's like kind of like she's writing diss tracks and i'm loving it i genuinely yeah, yeah. am and the thing is i never i knew blue was a sad melancholy album but i didn't really know until i dug into it so far this week i didn't really know that acid kind of burning in between the lyrics and it's she just great yeah. i feel like i feel like the album cover almost gives it this like unearned it's a sad album reputation fully and it is just so not that first of all there's so much joy on here Mm -hmm. all i want carrie california i mean carrie is just pure joy Come and on. I love knowing that that's about a friend of hers who was a redheaded waitress in greece (laughs) a crazy woman named carrie and yeah. she frames it as if, you know, Carrie's a man because she sings, you know, about Carrie in that context. But Carrie was a friend of hers who was just like this crazy redheaded woman who was home waitress in Greece. <laughs> she is While the she redneck in, in California. Her. She's yeah. uh, a meta redneck in a, a beach Paris oh, in right. Paris, a redneck in Paris. That's Carrie. <coughs> we live in Paris together. Okay, okay, okay. Yeah. But long story short, um, it's a phenomenal album. It really is. Okay. Like the thing is, all these songs are lionized rightly for a reason. I will say that last time I saw Richard doesn't have that same force for me as the rest yeah, of the album, but that's like the, the only thing. Track. It's just a little yeah. breath at the end. But you they should have left in that case of you. That's a devastating. And truth song. be told, a last track that kind of feels a little bit of a breath and not as essential at the end. Yeah. It's kind of the same criticism I have towards Court and Spark. Because mm-hmm. Twisted is this weird little jazzy kind of snap-along number, which is, like, fine, but it kind of belies the ten tracks that precede it. Mm-hmm. Because Court and Spark, the thing is that musically, 
it, the fact that she has the jazz, the band LA Express behind her, it is one of the most remarkable productions I've ever heard on the album. But truth be told, this is also a record where every song I'm amazed isn't a single. And I know yeah. a lot of these songs were singles, but just like the opening, every single opening line is different, a different instrument, whether it's just a woodwind or a guitar or a weird little kind of garbled synth noise. Like everything on Court and Spark is just incredible. And the interplay of all these instruments, these casual horns that weave in and out of songs, mm-hmm. it is just, yeah. um, it genuinely is full light, a musical masterpiece. It also just happens to have songs that match. Mm-hmm. You know, like it's one of the things. There is a little bit of a little bit more appearing on kind of the outside because obviously Freeman in Paris is still talking about the you know it's about David Geffen kind of running free yeah. around and not having to make decisions for people and that star making machinery anymore. But at the same time, Christ, Christ, this fucking album. As I was reading uh, the thirty third and the third book on it, and was talking about the power of hearing it as a young kid. The author heard help me on the radio and help me just like think about the reveal oh. of just that opening line there. Help. Okay, what's wrong? I think I'm falling. Falling in what? In love. Oh, that's very sweet. Too fast. Oh, what? Again? It's already happened before? Like, just in this, like, small series of lines, it's telling this elaborate, evolving story by itself. And that is, like, the strength of her. Between Blue and Court and Spark, this is her at her prime in terms of writing. It is just... Truly. Yeah. Also, I just love, because part of what makes me so happy about Help Me specifically, first of all, it's one of, like, the earliest songs I remember like truly loving myself mm-hmm. like as a teenager but also just thinking about like a song with a melody this complex would never be a hit yeah in 2020 all of the, or run, 2021. All the scales and the chromatic the, uh, just the fact uh, like she she's just like I think I'm falling she's in her alto range and then she goes when I get that crazy feeling like who who on radio is hidden into their soprano range? No one does that anymore. Yes. And it's just like... Yeah. I love... And this is true across her whole career and why she, you know, was accepted by the jazz community and, and leaned into that so much. But man, she just does not care about the rules of chords. <laughs> Nope. She will just, it's whatever notes just sound right to her is what is being played. And and we, I don't even think we talked about for a lot of the early albums, and you don't, you don't notice it hearing the songs, but she uh, wrote and arranged a lot of them on a three-string dulcimer. Oh. So there were only like two notes in the chords a lot of the times and things like that. So then when she brought them back and had people play them on guitar, they were like, well, what, what, what is, is it? This? What is it? <laughs> right. What is, what am I supposed to be playing? Yeah. And she's like, figure it out. Yeah. <laughs> well, because also, I mean, she's described how because she suffered from polio at such a young age, she had to learn how to grip the guitar differently in a oh. way that other people had not done before. And since right. she was self-taught, it was her rules, and just people had to kind of follow it. Wow. So, she quietly innovative in that way. Also heard an anecdote that she got frustrated with her session musicians around Court and Spark hissing of Summer Long's time, and they were like, you need jazz musicians. You're hiring all these rock, like, yeah. guys for we your We don't sessions. know how to do this. Right. You yeah. know, what you're asking for is something that a because jazz a jazz musician, musician can, can find the you. nuance. They right. can find that quarter note that a rock musician says, it's a chord. Yeah. You know, and uh, so it's fascinating. But then you have Car on a Hill. Uh, for, me, for me, like, honestly, I didn't, I wasn't that familiar with people's parties. Like, I've heard this album before, but that fucking. I love that song. Oh, my God. I love people's yeah. parties. Yeah. yeah. Do you love this album? I do love this album, but I don't love this album as much as I love Blue. Really? Yeah. Why? I, uh, Blue, every single song feels so 
personal and feels so much of her bearing herself and her soul. And Court and Spark, a lot of it is like that, but a lot of it isn't. Like, she's got her little song about David Geffen wandering around Paris. Mm-hmm. Um, she's got Twist, Twisted. I'm again, yeah. all, again, I'm almost willing to give that right. a pass just due to the last time I saw Richard comparison. Just that last song uh, at the end that feels kind of. Last time I saw Richard contextually, I feel okay it's, with it happening at the end yeah. after a case of you because it's almost like you need a second. Like, it, it's. <laughs> she made you devastated. She doesn't want to leave you crying. She's going to be like, and also, let me tell you about the last time I saw Richard. Yeah, <laughs> Versus Court and Spark, I feel like the context of Twisted at the end there after Troubled Child, I'm just like. But then you yeah. have Down to You. Down to You is a great song. <laughs> California is a great song. Yeah. River is a great song. That is the thing is like, I love both of these albums. They absolutely deserve to be in these spots. But just looking at track lists, I just, I do, I do love Court and Spark. Yeah. You know, Help Me obviously is an all-timer. I think Free Man in Paris, again, is like, I hear the production on that and I'm like, yes, this is what radio sounded like yes. in 1974. Like, and the, all of the guitar licks and the riffs and the, the way the arrangement flows into each other, I think it's just, it's perfect pop music. You mentioned people's parties. That was another like big discovery for me this week. And I do like the second half, but it's not quite as strong. I think Raised on Robbery is really fun. Yes. But it's sort of her putting on a hat more than it is... A rock hat. Yeah. More than it is, like, a genuine Joni Mitchell moment. Whereas I think I'm going to agree with Allie on this one, that Blue is just... I mean, it's just every single fucking song. I would also offer that there's a counterpart for almost every song from Blue to Court and Spark. And the blue one is almost always better. Like, All I Want could be heavily compared with Help Me, right? And I think All I Want is a better song than Help Me. Hmm. I think it has a cooler, like, melodic journey kind of thing. Uh, same thing with Free Man in Paris. You could compare that to California. And I think California is a better song. Like, they sound texturally very similar. I, I can see the argument. I'm just very surprised. I thought it was going to be more of a uh, closer hedge uh, race on there. And I think part of the reason that what impressed me most about The Court and Spark is that Blue is her at her pure songwriting best. There is good production on it, too. But at the same time, it is largely just her with her guitar. just expressing, And sometimes her on her piano expressing the emotions. And I'm not saying that, like, oh, a studio is going to help out on here. But the fact that with Court and Spark, it is one of the most musically rich cakes I've ever had. Like, these are pop songs, but the number of instruments, the lyric, the musical complexity that is contained within... She refused and the, to compromise. And the fact that it just it's still digestible in this sweet bite, it's honestly astonishing to me, in the sense that, like, she could see a little bit more of that on Hissing of Summer Lawns, you could see some of that on uh, Hygiera, but Court and Spark just feels like this weird amalgam of her and her songwriting merging with this musical backing band that can mm-hmm. actually match every idea in her head. So there's this color and explosion to Court and Spark, which I think helps lift and inform songs themselves because even in Freeman in Paris like okay is it just about David Geffen or can you apply things to your own life and yes. I feel like you can because also the music helps bring it to that degree mm-hmm. so yeah. I feel like it is in the sense it so goes down so easy and I think it is so impressive because I'm thinking about how would anyone record all of this today this level of complexity it's no fucking surprise that on the Joni Mitchell tribute album of course Freeman in Paris was covered by goddamn Sufjan Stevens in his fucking whimsy of pop course. prime because he's the only person who I think would even be a close amalgam yes. of what that album tries to accomplish. So for me, like, I was just like, I again, I it doesn't have the soul-bearing uh, quality of Blue because 
because blue is just a full out, here is my heart, it, the blood still dripping down my hand as I hold it out to you. And for me, Court and Spark, it didn't do that because it didn't need to. Not every album has to be Heartbreak Central, and it was just a powerful pop moment that not even she could replicate in the exact same way. As much as I love discovering Hissing of Summer Lawns, Court and Spark still held that thing for me. So mm -hmm. if it breaks away and blue's number one, this might shock you. I don't, that's fine. This is, this is great. I love talking about these albums so much, but my vote was going to be Court and Spark number one, but that's just me. Wow. Yeah. Okay. I, I understand your argument, and I also <laughs> will say that the, the songs in general, the music production on Court and Spark is richer, for sure. But I think that the rawness of Blue lends itself to the material of Blue and mm -hmm. what she's talking about in Blue. And so... And, also, <laughs> and, and, and as much as... Because I'm all about production. Yes. You know that, that production can be where I, where I lean on a lot yeah. of these races. But Blue is just... It's not lacking for color in any way. Mm -hmm. And that's usually when... Blue, when, green. Uh, <laughs> and that's usually when I'm having a, like, a later career versus earlier argument and I'm leaning towards the production, it's because, you know, it definitely, it added something that was missing, whereas I don't think that anything no. was missing on mm -hmm. you. Yep. It's just different. Okay. Yeah. Well, we've been talking about Joni for 68 minutes. I think I think that means we can call it at this point. Yeah. All right. In that case, ladies and gentlemen, that means that for our picks, we have at number 10, Don Juan's Reckless Daughter. Number 9, Mingus. Number 8, Song to a Seagull. Number 7, Ladies <laughs> of the Canyon. Number 6, Clothes. Number 5, Four of the Roses. Number 4, Hygiera. Number 3, The Hygiera. Hygiera. Number 2, Court and Spark. And of course, you know, number 1, it is Dog Bites Dog, or album from 1986. No. Oh, it's not that. I'm sorry. I'm misinformed. It's actually blue. It's blue. Uh, number one. But listen, we have so fucking much to talk about in this happy hour mini so that's going to be coming up right after this. And by that, I mean a week from now, because that's when it gets posted. Uh, let me just say that right now, uh, it's been a hell of a journey. And Allie, thank you so fucking much yeah. for going on it with us and giving us your knowledge and experience and perspective. It's been great. I think It's been you. my pleasure to fight for hissing of summer lawns. Damn fucking right. <laughs> Oh my god, yes! Uh, and Taryn, as always. As always. Hello. Hello. <laughs> I'm uh, here. But, but the thing is, the only other voice that's more important than the people in this room is your voice, the listener. And that's why we need you to donate $3. I'm kidding, we don't have a donation thing. But if you could leave a review, that would be great. Think of dollars as, uh, you know, stars on a review site. And if you leave us $5, that's great. Uh, and if that's not, free I don't care. money. That's like Bitcoin. That's so much money. It's Bitcoin, except in review <laughs> form. Uh, but also, let's feel free to sound off. Find us on the Twitters. Find us on the Facebooks. Find us. I think those are the only things we have. Uh, but find us on those places and let us know what you think. And in the meantime, keep on listening because you know that we'll be. Have a good one, everybody. Good. Bye. Hello. This is David from the new movies podcast, Catching Up David. I thought I'd tell you a little bit about one of the movies we watched recently that I liked the most, and that was Lilo and Stitch. I especially liked the aliens in Lilo and Stitch, which I didn't realize was a thing. He didn't realize that was a thing because David doesn't know anything about modern pop culture. He somehow missed all of the 2000s. So Kristen and I, we made a list of the pop culture canon movies that we feel were 
influential and have really solidified their place in today's pop culture. And we make David watch them. So if you want to experience someone experiencing pop culture for the first time having lived in a bubble, we can be found at Catching Up David on Twitter. Or you can find us any place you listen to podcasts. Or at catchingupdavid.podbean.com.